Welcome to Permaculture Freedom Podcast. My name is Cody and I'm your host. This is a show about cultivating freedom in our lives so we can be our best self. Freedom to live a beautiful, regenerative lifestyle that inspires our families, our friends, and our community. To transform our lives and reconnect to nature within. It's a revival of our roots. Roots that run deep into the earth. We were born for this time. We were born for this time. Thanks for joining me on this beautiful journey. Thanks for showing up. great conversations with folks from open hearth program especially so so yeah it's just oh, a, it's, a, it's a great thing to just do during the winter time too to, to kind of reconnect because it just gets so slow and, and people get really isolated and you're like yeah. did that season even happen <laughs> yeah right right exactly so, well, well yeah. i was hoping we could get started um by you just telling a little bit about yourself and you know how you enjoy spending your time and, and what's your life look like nowadays yeah yeah um well i'm um first second generation city dweller <laughs> turned <laughs> farmer um i am from a working class family and I really value um, like um, sovereignty and hard work and um, decentralizing power in the skillful hands of many. And so um, this is kind of like a nutshell of a synthesis of why I do what I do now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I enjoy my time. I enjoy spending my time um, working with people, working closely with plants being outdoors, developing systems for things to operate more smoothly, whether it's communication systems or plant things, plant, plant systems for things, for even pollinators to operate more smoothly within plants and vice versa. Um, I don't know if I have an everyday life. Like, I just know what does my everyday life look like? Um, every day is very different. Um, it could be like I'm journeying, uh, to um, a conference to give a talk in collaboration with other partners, um, whether in regards to seed work or it could involve, you know, visiting fields and checking on crops and making sure people have what they need and they're staying hydrated. Mm-hmm. And it could also revolve into, like, um, researching farm apprentices and looking at different programs and trying to develop better models for regenerative skill building. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it really does run the gamut yeah. for my day. Yeah. Yeah. And how, how has that changed yeah. now moving into the winter? Um, everything's more computer-based right now, doing a lot of seed processing, making sure that things are getting, um, seeds are getting cleaned up and tucked away and analyzed to see if they're good for the next season. Um, and then, you know, planning for next year already started two months ago. Like, so 2020 planning was well underway in October. Mm. Um, and that involves planning for how we're going to regenerate the seed bank, planning which conferences I'm going to go to, planning which 
um, talks I'm going to give, and this is, but I'm talking here within Seed Savers Exchange as mm-hmm. well as Seed Sages, as well as outside of those, uh, outside of the seed world. So, mm-hmm. um, just like starting to do planning and cover cropping and test, do soil testing on site here. Um, so things like now that the ground is starting to freeze, like things are just more computer oriented and mm-hmm. being able to talk to people and synthesize the season, like having proper reflection mm-hmm. about the season. Yep. Sure. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd love to talk more about the, your position with Seed Savers and Seed Sages, too, um, shortly here. But I also want to touch on permaculture because that's how we first crossed paths um, many years ago now through the Permaculture Research Institute. And oh, my gosh. With, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When was that? 2015? 2014? I can't remember. 2013? Maybe 14. Yeah. 14, I think. Yep. There you go. So, yeah, that season was wonderful connecting with you and and apprenticing with Tiny Diner and wonderful project. And I got to meet a lot of other folks in Twin Cities. Um, So, yeah, I I, I really want to talk a a little bit about permaculture and what it means to you. How has it influenced your life? Yeah, I think permaculture, in addition to a couple other methodologies and value systems that I've used, you know, like the quadruple quintuple or what is yeah, quadruple bottom line. I think there's just a fifth bottom line model out there now, but in a nutshell, it really like helps me not take shortcuts, like have a deeper meaning to like not take shortcuts and make sure things are done really well for everything, not just well for humans and production and mm-hmm. yield, because that's oftentimes too narrow of a scope to really do healthy communities justice. And when I say healthy communities justice, I mean like justice for everyone, but justice for bees and the trees. And so permaculture is another lens to wear all the time when I'm working with humans and seeds and land. Um, so it's added another tool set that I can refer to that is quickly gaining even more momentum in the United States, I can quickly refer to it and people kind of like are starting to begin like automatically like, oh, because you care, that kind Mm -hmm. of thing, because Mm -hmm. we need to care. Mm -hmm. And so it's nice to be able to refer to that, um, to that design work um, and overlay that wherever I go. I don't Mm -hmm. often use the word permaculture, but I can like, just like I say, quadruple bottom line, I can say like, this is one of those design methods that looks like that. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Could you explain a little bit more about the quadruple bottom line and what that is? Yeah. So, you know, it kind of is reflected in permaculture's principles. You have Mm -hmm. care for the earth, care for people, share the abundance. Um, So the same thing is like um, quadruple bottom line is like make sure you have a yield, make sure there's, um, make sure there's a yield for community members, make sure that there's carefree ecology you know, kind of like the same thing. And then the fourth one that I think is really vital is like, make sure you're upholding your values. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you're not, you're not engaging in three out of four. You're actually making sure you're not shortening on your value system either, because that really can get quickly eroded when you're focused on two or three things like people and profit or mm-hmm. people and or in profit and environment, but not people and not values. And usually it's carried through, but it's something to really make transparent and say like, no, there's a fourth thing here that we're speaking to and we're going to hold ourselves accountable. And we're also going to say like, this is, we're, this is one of our main pillars, you know, mm-hmm. and permaculture has tons of different values in it. Um, 
but just making that, you know, being like, there's four things here, four very distinct things to take into consideration. Yeah. So that's what I mean by four to quadruple yeah. bottom line. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so have you ever taken a PDC course? I think I've asked you this before or another type of, <laughs> you know, permaculture design training. So I took PDC, my first one in um, New Mexico with the arid, was it Dryland Institute? Mm-hmm. Um, really cool. Scott Pittman and his wife, Arena, and then like Brad Lancaster, um, Toby Hemingway, who just passed away, mm-hmm. which is really like slap in the face to me. I'm like, whoa, like people do age and we do have temporary seasons here. And it's just mm-hmm. like, oh, <laughs> these will be beautiful people. Yeah. Um, so I took it there. And then I took an additional training with Dave Jackie in Sandstone, Minnesota for teaching permaculture, which was one of the best trainings classes I've ever had in my life. Like I've done graduate school and undergrad and it was very good. I still have like a carry on this big binder of like all these activities and frameworks for teaching, but it's, it's so helpful. It was so thorough. Mm. And the people that I met there, like Kathy Rose and mm-hmm. Andrea and what was it? Um, who's with the South Southwoods? Who's, um, God, oh, Dan. Dan Halsey. Yep. I met all the people there. Mm-hmm. So, Paula Westmoreland I met for the first time there. Mm-hmm. It was a really good training. Really good. I still do those techniques to this day. Yeah. Yeah. So, I wish I would offer it again. Like they should. <laughs> they should come back and come back to the Midwest and do another one. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's yeah. that's beautiful. What 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 do you think was so so strong about that experience for you? Well, they were trying to get people to to share with they were to, they started with the platform like because it wasn't teaching about permaculture. It was uh-huh. helping people learn how to communicate with many people, mm. whether you're defining yourself as a teacher or not yeah. or you're a farmer. But first you have to start off with like assessing how you learn and how you communicate first. And mm. then it was like looking into like how other people learn to communicate and then you have to bridge it. So it was like all these staggered things. And you can apply that whether or not you're working strictly in permaculture. You can apply that when you're managing people. You can apply that if you're just doing a CSA farm. Like very helpful. Yeah. 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 I I think that speaks to what you were saying at the beginning of the conversation too, about not using the word permaculture, right? It's, it's, it's actually, it's the translation and that's where the magic is and, and where permaculture design can be so universal in its application. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Cause it's a whole system approach. It's like nothing really falls outside of it. Although some things are looked at more than others. Yeah, in the you know the mainstream permaculture sphere. Although I think people are starting to look at other things too, like social social design and stuff. Yeah, but yeah. Well, that that kind of leads me to my next question. Where do you, where do you think permaculture design or whole systems design or you know whatever phrase you want to <laughs> use falls short? You know, where do you think it's like not quite living up to its concepts and principles, or where do you feel like the growing edge edge is for it? Um. I think any design should have like a, like the design itself should have a feedback loop, like not just like the plants within the system, but like the design should be revisited every year and that should be part of like the actual, what clients get or what people create together. Because, you know, like checking in on, you and me did this, we did walkthroughs, you know, Mm -hmm. look at these gaps, what's going on here, what really worked, what didn't, like 
that shouldn't be haphazard. That should actually be built into the, like the design and like the different layers that are going to happen yeah. for subsequent years in succession. You know, I feel like yeah. that's huge and pretty obvious that you and me could be like, yeah, clearly we need to have more um, conscious uh, check-ins and structure around this, these, this uh, second, third year growth, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, same thing for me in terms of, I, I'm, I would, if I did a design, I would definitely build those in. I think like to building a social design for, mm-hmm. as an overlay mm-hmm. for a space is super important. Yeah. And that's where I'm like, and I think regenerative leadership is really important. And I don't think those are very, those are very like um, just buzzwords right now. And I, that's where I see a growing edge for mm-hmm. in design for myself. Yes. I love, I will always work with plants and yes, but I think there's like kind of a glut of people who want to do the physical design mm-hmm. and like, People can do like, then there's various levels of people who can do a really good design. Like they're just starting out and they're like, here's an orchard and here's some chickens, you know? Yep. But um, um, I really kind of feel like the growing edges for me are like regenerative design, social design for people on that space so that we yep. can actually have things that carry over and are continuous. Because like you and me talk about, it's not about um, if, it, if trees could just get planted, it's like, how are, how's that community around that tree, human community, staying intact enough to take care of that and yeah. care about that design? Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's, I was, was going to say, I think part of what you're talking about right now is what's referred to a lot in permaculture teaching as the invisible structures. It's like one of those last chapters in the permaculture designer's manual that gets into this kind of layer that, you know, as, as we get more of those foundations like the food and the water and the shelter and all those like really tangible, you know, visible things. It's working towards that, that growing edge of like, okay, how do we move to the next level? Mm -hmm. It's funny that it's like the last chapter of the book when I I feel like it should be the first chapter of the book. And then also like, um, what was I going to say? It's funny because like people aren't invisible. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of like, it's interesting that it's defined as invisible because <laughs> humans are usually like the biggest footprint and the biggest, you know, so it's almost like yeah. maybe we should redefine like what within that sphere is invisible and what yep. isn't and what is it just being ignored because it's too mm-hmm. hard to deal with. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, yeah, yeah, and it's interesting you said that too because, I mean, it's like it's really talking about those soft skills that are so crucial, crucially like integrated into each one of those chapters on the more physical things, right? and getting all of those things accomplished. It's, it's, it's like the glue that holds together approaching all of the other things that we all need to kind of work together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes doing the physical design is like putting the cart before the horse. Although yeah. if you're working small enough scale and it's just your own, then maybe it's not as important, Yeah. you know? Exactly. But a lot of projects are so cool that they do involve a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, and I think maybe it also comes from that, the concept of, you know, the zones abuse and like moving out from, you know, the, you know, the individual to groups, to community, to region. And maybe it's thinking on that, that kind of scale too. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Cool. Well, I would love to know what, what did you say? A second generation city dweller? Is that how you described yourself? I'd yeah, because, you know, people, like, find us in these fields and they're like, oh, you must have been born on a farm. I'm like, I was born right in the heart of the city. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. So so how, how did – oh, go ahead. 
No, you go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, so how did a second generation city dweller end up in Decorah, Iowa? And what are you doing? Oh, yeah. Just uh, by virtue of needing a job and wanting something meaningful. And, um, in the seed world, there's very few, few and far positions to actually find something that is meaningful work in seed. So I'm working at Seed Savers Exchange, and mm-hmm. I, this is my second time working here and living in a small town, and it's refreshing at this point in my life to be in a smaller space. Um, mm-hmm. It kind of speak, it looks at like things aren't as centralized and things are more easily navigated, although there's drawbacks too mm-hmm. um, in setting. But that's why I'm here to like kind of just take a sidestep and explore the seed world in a greater depth with more people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then being part of a small town is just like easier on the heart than cities can be at this point for me. Mm. Even though all my friends are and family are in the city. Yeah. But it's not affordable. So yeah. I'm not going to struggle like that. Yeah. Well, that's a whole nother conversation that I'd love to have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But re- yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I was asking about seed savers and, the, and that work because I'd, I'd really love to hear more about what, you know, what really got you hooked with seed saving and why it's important. And, you know, did, did, can you think of any specific like aha moments that you had that yeah. kind of led you down this path? I'd love to hear. Yeah, so I applied to work at Seeds of Change Farm in 2008, and I was an intern for a whole farm season there, mm-hmm. and it's no longer in New Mexico, and so I would not like suggest people ever working for them again, but at the time, it was really great. It was the first time I had, like, um, it was a very, you had focused projects there, and the first time I saw, like, I had worked at a farm before, it was, like, vegetable crop farming, and you did dealt with small like four different kinds of lettuce or two of your main best-selling carrots or mm-hmm. three or four, but like never a whole bunch of stuff. And I got to see hundreds of like tens of hundreds of different varieties of things. And it just blew my mind. And then I got to be like, why aren't farmers like more involved with varieties? And like, mm-hmm. why don't we know about like we're losing different. And I knew about the loss about it, loss about diversity period across the board, which is always concerning me. And I also thought about agricultural biodiversity. And I was like, they go hand in hand. Like, when we can hold up the varieties on the table, we can usually protect the varieties in the forest, too. You know, it kind of, like, goes hand in hand. Instead of people chopping down the forest and putting a mono crop in, there's more likely people will honor diversity through and mm-hmm. through. So I just thought that's when it was, like, my aha moment of, like, mm-hmm. eating, tasting 17 different kinds of carrots and realizing there's such a wide variety of flavors mm-hmm. in variety of one crop. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I need to do more work after this. That was a seasonal job, so I couldn't... Um, keep going but I definitely decided like I would do seed work well beyond and so I started I kept in touch and there's no way for me to do seed work after that really there was no outlet Mm -hmm. Uh, I think I and then I went back to graduate school to look at how can seeds be part of like community and regional development and Mm -hmm. that was my graduate work but um just really I've always done seed work on the side ever since 2008 like whether it's doing a little training doing my own seed seed saving seed production or starting a consulting business that tries to help farmers and gardeners do it. So. Yeah. Cause I just can't let it go. I can't, it's like, I guess I can't, I, there's like a parallel, like people have their thing they do that they love on the side or in the evenings. And that's kind of what my seed work has always been. And I just mm. happen to have a full time job now at it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what got you from South Minneapolis to that internship? 
what's in between there? Oh, I was a, oh, God, like, Cody, you're bringing me back. <laughs> <laughs> you're not that old. Come on. <laughs> oh, what was going on? Well, I had been working at a law office, a bilingual law office, um, as a paralegal. Mm-hmm. And I worked in the office for nine months, like no seeing no son or whatever. And I just kind of like, and my grandpa died. And I like hit a switch. And I was like, I need to get back to farming. Mm-hmm. I've been farming the last couple of seasons. Mm-hmm. Like, I need to get out of here. And I need to go to New Mexico because I've always loved that place and never lived there. And then I found like, wrote to all these different farms in New Mexico, a goat farm, a seed farm, all this stuff. And then that one was the best one that I wrote to. Really responsive. You could do your own projects. And I was like, hitting the road. Mm-hmm. April 4th, I was there. April 4th of 2008. I needed to, like, get away from, um, get, like, totally grieve my grandfather's death and then mm. totally be uh, in a different physical space. Yeah. So that's really what got me out there. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And then it was meaningful work and hard work. So you know when you're working hard, you kind of forget about all the other stuff because you just have to focus on surviving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what it was. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, is, is there a connection that, you have with your grandfather and, and farming or, you know, the seed saving or any, anything? Yeah. Both my grandpas, they came from farming backgrounds and they didn't farm the rest of their lives after 15, you know, one was kicked off of his family farm and the other had to flee like Russians and Nazis, you know? Mm. So it was a very much a trauma based uh, farming history. Mm. And my grandpa has never really taught me that much because I wasn't part of their lives except for like when I was a teen. Mm-hmm. And the grandpa Jerry, the one that they both are died, they both died. But I helped my one German grandfather plant wildflowers. He was just like me, knew they needed to be there. This is long before boulevards were being taken down to be put mm-hmm. in perennials. Mm-hmm. My grandpa had planting by seed perennials in his boulevard. Mm. It was so cool. I don't even know what I was doing, but I knew it was a good thing to do with grandpa. Yeah. And then um, my grandpa Jerry, he always said like he didn't even believe in God, but he's some reason like towards the end of his life, he's like, you know working with the land is God's work. And I was just mm-hmm. like, this is like some of his epiphanies happening. Like, wow. and he said, he always wish he would have never left the farm. Although he didn't really have a choice. as like a teenager when he got kicked out, but he wished he never would have left it. Mm. And so those things were super, super meaningful, but also just having like close, I've always been close to like other species and plants and squirrels and stuff. Like I've yeah. always felt really a lot of security and comfort. And mm-hmm. I think that was part. Yeah. Well, with living in the city, was that something that you were able to tap into within the city or, you know, like, what was it that, that brought you to working on farms in the first place? I mean, you must have had some sort of experience that yeah, you connected with that. Liberal arts college is really hard. <laughs> Always on books and screens and you get graduate and you're like, what did I learn? Uh-huh. I need to learn some really tangible things. So when I graduated from college, I just went to Colorado and farmed mm-hmm. for a month. It was really cool. I just want to get tactile, you know? Yeah. Like craving that as a, mm-hmm. trying to be a whole being, like craving that. So that's mm-hmm. where that came from when I was 22. Mm-hmm. But always having grown like a little garden or like sunflower garden in my parents' yard, a little yeah. city plot. Yeah. 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 So fast forward to now, um, you know, speaking from that, that past of, you know, what brought you to this moment, um, what, what do you enjoy most about what you do and the work that you're involved in, the movement of seed saving and seed sovereignty? Mm. I guess 
I don't know what I enjoy most because it's like I'm really stressful. So I'm trying to like come back to why I do this. Um, I guess I enjoy that I'm not feeding the beast. That by like saving seed and passing to other people and making sure people are staying connected to land and plants, mm-hmm. we're less likely to have as much of a hardship as we are going to face if I were just making money. Period. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm not adding. I'm adding less and less by doing this work onto the. I'm adding less stress on the earth, and that feels really good, even though it's a stressful thing to do because capitalism doesn't work with these kinds of jobs very easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my moral values are more or less upheld through my work, which is really unique. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what I enjoy. I enjoy. I also enjoy like seeing people just become better people by working with plants and each other and seeds. I also mm-hmm. enjoy supporting that. Yeah. However, I can, whether I'm a director or manager or consultant, like mm-hmm. being able to guide people, mm-hmm. that's really great. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't feel like I'm not doing it for the benefit of myself. It's not like it's mm-hmm. making me more like this is the benefit of everything. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's really good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that make sense? Did I answer your question? Are you getting the Yes. Yeah. No, definitely. I, 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 that made me think of another question, I'd, and I'd love to just ask you, you know, how, how do you paint a picture for, for people, you know, everyday people that might not even really be aware of, of seed saving and, and the importance of it? What do you like to speak to? Oh, everyday picture. I don't really know what that is. Like, why is seed saving important to you and important for life on this planet? Well, since humans began being humans, we were always saving seeds and eating seeds and Mm. dropping them wherever we were living and they would grow and they would change into something else. Like, humans would not be here without flowers and pollinators Mm. and seeds. Mm -hmm. There's no physical evidence that suggests otherwise. So it's like seeds and flowers and all those species are our, are our family. Uh-huh. And so and the importance of it, you know, if we allow them to be remain in the commons and proliferate and generate their own diversity, we get to, we luckily get to like harvest the abundance of that diversity. Uh-huh. But if we choose to ignore and let other invisible, quote unquote, invisible peoples or machines do that work for us, we quickly will lose our access to that freedom and the freedom to feed ourselves and the freedom to um, have tons of different colors and textures and fibers and medicines in our backyard. Um, So that's usually how I would maybe start painting that picture for people. Uh And that's usually what I do some kind of like narrative. I usually don't bring up the dire I do it in little subtle ways, but I usually don't. I want to get people inspired and not scared. Um, but I do throw a couple of statistics out there to scare them to realize it is a big problem. <laughs> do you mind sharing any of those scary statistics? Mm. I could just send you a one website link that shows you like all the different genetically engineered counterpart crops that are out there, which means that like there's a lot of things that could, that you can just see the direction of. Yeah. corporate control of our food system like it's quickly sure. picking up speed to be like you, it quickly shows like what I've known for the last 10 years which is like the goal is not to like have a cool apple the goal is to like control food to have more money you yeah. know yeah. so 
Um, that's not, that's, not, that's not the main reason I do it. It's not to like in reaction to. Mm-hmm. It's like in celebration of what we've all inherited. Mm. In celebration of, I love that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why it's so cool to follow your guys' work because you guys are <laughs> doing that. I love it. I just want to like every picture you ever put up. Well, I think yeah. <laughs> I mean, so much of what you you say about the just the diversity of the colors and the textures and all of that. You know, I, I think I think you know, ever since we met, I've got that from you too, you know, working in the tiny diner garden and, and experiencing how incredibly diverse even a small space like that can be. And yeah, it, it's, it's wonderful because I never knew that story about your grandfather too and, and how that kind of led you down that path. So that's, that just roots that even deeper into my understanding of it. So that's beautiful. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I don't think I'd be anywhere if I'm reading this really cool book. I think it's fun I'm bringing it up, but just really talking about class more in the United States. But, like, I don't think I would have chosen farming unless I came from a working class background because it's, like, really honors, like, hard work. Yeah. Like, you take pride in hard work when you come from a working class background. Yeah. And so if I would have come from, like, a upper class, I wouldn't have, like, maybe I would have done it for a month, and I've been like, yeah, that's cool, but that's mm-hmm. not for me, you know, that kind of, like, not taking pride in that kind of work, so mm-hmm. I really am starting to appreciate that a little bit more, like, find the gems of, like, coming from those tears in, in capitalism, you know? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. There's a really cool book called uh, Working Class Cluelessness in America is really good. Okay. Very good. Awesome. <laughs> well, yeah, I can... Yeah, yeah, I can share. No, I was gonna say I can share that link that you mentioned and, and that one in the show notes for this too. So that's perfect. Okay. Um, yeah, I was gonna ask. You know, in 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 regards to farming and and seed saving too, what do you feel like are some of the common misconceptions you hear um, about the work that you do and its importance, and you know, maybe people that are under the impression that you know, we're just trying to feed the world and, and GMOs are yeah. for that purpose alone. Yeah, common sense conception is like farming is our problems in, with the food crisis are solved by like looking at yield only. That's a yeah. misconception. Um, that seed saving is a hobby, that it's a drop in the bucket. Mm. Um, it doesn't have, you can't go up against these this momentum of corporate farming and, or I call it corporate land mining, but let's be real about it. Um, <laughs> you know, we can't do anything about it, really. We're such a small, small little enclave. Um, I've also heard that, like, if you don't, that genetically engineering isn't isn't really a threat. It's just, like, who, who controls it is a threat mm-hmm. to biodiversity. I think that's a huge misconception that it's that somehow a, a inert kind of like technology is, is a really interesting thing that I've heard a lot of young people talk about. I don't know what they're being trained in their schools, but like I had a couple of interns say that and I just was like blown away. I was like, you guys not look into like what's going on here and how things haven't been researched properly. And it goes on and on. Mm-hmm. But those are some big ones. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, other misconceptions are that organic farmers make a lot of money <laughs> because the prices are high. So Same with organic seed growers. You don't make a lot of money. Yeah. Because um, it's usually all more labor intensive. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yep, exactly. Well, yeah. that yeah, that that helps because I'm I'm just curious about what what sort of things you come across. I mean, we come across all sorts of misconceptions about all of this work. You know, when we're teaching workshops and and at farmers markets and you know just talking to family and friends and it's yeah it, it's a it's a complex issue and yeah. it's taken us so many years just to to understand all the different components of it you know through firsthand experience really oh yeah I, exactly and i think i think one other misconception i just thought of as you were talking is like yeah that's like hippie work or like that's mm-hmm. like I don't know. A lot of people around the world do this work, regardless mm-hmm. of what people think that is coming in at them. At it's just like really that's otherizing the work and otherizing yeah. the people. And it's not healthy, and I mm-hmm. think that that's constant and it's really bad because it's just the main pockets that may really need this kind of stuff. They just aren't listening for it mm-hmm. because they think that it is other, mm-hmm. not like for them or like culturally sensitive to them or something. So I think all these misconceptions is point to where we need to do more work, you know, Yeah. So that we have to react to it. It's so to make things more available or approachable or. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, if those, if those people were listening right now, what would you say to them? <laughs> <laughs> oh God, that's so many different people. That's I'm like, well, <laughs> um, let's see. They are listening. I would I would just start with a question like what what do you what do you want the world to look like for everyone in five years? Mm-hmm. Do you do you want it to look um, the same? Mm-hmm. Do you want you know I would kind of start like that. Yeah. And I would say, because um, I don't know I don't know I would do some like bigger like expand it out and be like yeah this is the time to connect pieces and connect dots and connect with each other and um, really use the things. You don't, doesn't mean you have to be the same. It just means that we are unified too. Yeah. We're unified like the forest and filling different niches and mm. we need everyone um, yeah. as whole and coherently as we can each be. Mm. And, you know, I would, I would pose it as a question first because like, you always get the naysayers and it's like, okay, you can naysay everything. What do you, I don't, you know, don't be afraid of saying what you want to, what you dream about. And if mm-hmm. they just say, I don't care about the world in five years. And I was like, well, why don't you care? What's mm-hmm. going on there? What mm-hmm. happened? Yeah. Um, you know, I would start there. Yeah. You ask two or three or four whys and you get to get to the root of it pretty quickly. I hope so. <laughs> if I, I don't, think, then I'm sending somebody after a psychologist. Yeah, I, I love I love the way that you answered that question because it shows that you know the influence of you know these these principles from nature you know and permaculture really of observation first and asking questions rather than making assumptions and creating some sort of you know obstacle or barrier for people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, Kobe, but I would love to just ask you, you know, for, for folks that want to learn more about some of the stuff we talked about today, uh, where would you send them? What would you recommend? Good place to start. Just resources. Well, if they need specifics and they want to talk to me, they can go to my website and send me a contact, contact me mm-hmm. inquiry. Um, I, that website has never been updated, but it still gets my inbox. So Um, Also, if they want to learn more about community seed work, 
Seed Savers Exchange has the Community Seed Network, which has, and they also have the Yearbook Exchange, which highlights different heirlooms and different seed crops that people can request to use and do a lot of cool work around those two resources, the Yearbook and then the um, Community Seed Network, CSN. Mm. Um, and then what do I want to say about just other general resources? I mean, there's so many, I don't even know. Um, those are two good places to start Thank if you, you want to know more about Midwestern. Midwestern yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more like it, you can do three simple things right now. One, you can subscribe to Permaculture Freedom Podcast if you haven't yet. Number two, you can leave a short review for us on iTunes. And third, share this episode with a person in your life you think would enjoy it too. Thank you. I really appreciate your support. Until next time, take care, my friend.